Today's guest on the Bat Segundo Show specializes in words and images, so this poses a minor problem for this program's prefatory reading. You see, these prefatory readings are largely about dramatizing words from a book and giving you a sense of who the person is before we talk with them. So we have a very strange pickle that we're in. The following excerpt from Lisa Hanawalt's My Dirty Dumb Eyes will have to be adjusted. It's going to be accompanied by wild and rambunctious dog sounds for poetic effect, lasting about 10 to 15 seconds. These dog sounds will serve in lieu of images. Now we realize that some of our listeners may be disturbed by this sonic juxtaposition, which is why we have provided this cautionary disclaimer that lasts, well, much longer than the preparatory reading. What do dogs want? Number one, a house made out of old fish. Number two, a tennis ball bride. Number three, a salt lick in the shape of human legs. Number four, the chance to sit down and chat with a squirrel. So you see, it's really difficult to relate Lisa Hanawalt's book to you in audio form without sounding silly. But I assure you, her images are lively and surreal. You have these animals who are often humanized. They're trying to cope with various anxieties. And it's this very surrealism that creates this way of making sense of the real world, whether it's through lists of everyday observations, such as a wedding registry, movie reviews that aren't really movie reviews, or... Intriguingly, reporting on a toy fair and learning about the surprising egotism of certain toy manufacturers. Well, you'll hear about all this in just a bit. Anyway, I very much enjoyed My Dirty Dumb Eyes. This book came my way unsolicited in the mail. I learned that Lisa lived in Brooklyn, so I asked if I could talk with her. She agreed. So, on one rainy afternoon, I decided to walk over to her apartment in Greenpoint and foolishly did not wear any kind of coat or sweater. I actually uh, was wearing just a t-shirt, the first one that I picked, and uh, Lisa and I actually talked about that, too. Um, this was a marvelous chat that got into everything from how to neigh like a horse to dealing with online trolls to tackling serious issues in comics. And I should point out that Lisa's dog, Indy, was extremely friendly, so friendly that uh, I was licked constantly. In fact, during most of the interview that you're about to hear. So this particular show sets a new Batsegundo record in terms of animal salivation. I think the dog licking, however, really helped to establish a very fun tone. Anyway, here's some little quick business. If you're listening to this show for the first time, this is the Batsegundo Show. You can listen to more than 500 other shows with writers, filmmakers, artists, and numerous other nifty people at www. Batsegundo, B-A-T-S-E-G-U-N-D-O dot com. And if you've got any cultural news that you'd like me to pass along, questions you'd like me to answer, or deranged statements you'd like me to read on air, feel free to email me. My email is ed at edrants, E-D-R-A-N-T-S dot com. You can also ping us at Twitter at at symbol B-A-T-S-E-G. U-N-D-O. Now, please be sure to spread the word about this show. Let people know that we're around. Word of mouth is going to help this program stay alive. So without further ado, here's the sublime and thoughtful and marvelous Lisa Hanawalt. Enjoy. Okay, so I am here with Lisa Hanawalt, who is most recently the author of My Dirty Dumb Eyes. Lisa, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing very well. As a matter of fact, I wanted to ask you about the title because in light of the Planet of the Apes story you have uh-huh. in this, I kept thinking that your title was My Damn Dirty Eyes. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like it's like you deliberately designed a title to like make Planet of the Apes 
fans just throw them off <laughs> because oh my we god think, you know i'm not sure if that was conscious or i didn't or even the, think about yeah. that till yeah. now yeah you just blew my mind i didn't think about okay. that uh, yeah because especially since there's the rise of the planet of the apes review and i was like oh i think she's kind of fucking and that's something us. i say to my boyfriend i call him you damn dirty ape whenever yeah. he's doing anything did, did, so, so you, you 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 generally say like my dumb dirty instead of my dirty dumb or how did that it's um, swapped. Swift. It's, it's dirty dumb, right? Yeah. Yes, it's dirty dumb. I, I actually tried it both ways, and I just like the way dirty dumb sounded. I thought dumb dirty is the more natural way to say it, but I just liked it. Sounded like a musical kind oh, of. Oh, I see. Dirty dumb, dirty dumb. I don't know. You you were revolting against natural euphony, basically. Yeah, I guess so. People keep switching them in reviews and stuff, and yeah. I don't care. I, I was determined to get it right. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I appreciate so, it. So you went to UCLA, and I'm a fellow Californian. Although oh. I was in Northern California, and you were Southern California. No, I'm from Northern California you are. originally. Yes. Where, where are you at? Where? Palo Alto. Palo Alto. Oh my God! I was born in Santa Clara. Whoa. So we're like Bay Areaites. Yep. So how did we both end up in Brooklyn? You first. Uh, you actually, you only. <laughs> <laughs> uh, me only. I. Well, I met my boyfriend, so that was a big. Oh, you know, I met a girl too. Yeah. Oh my god. It's a good reason to move. Um, How did we not run into each other until now? I don't know, but I mean. That was sort of not the official reason I moved for a long oh, time, just in case it didn't work out. I didn't want to say that. So I said it was to become part of a more vibrant comics community uh-huh. in Brooklyn, uh-huh. where more people of my age making comics here. How did we not run into each other at Alternative Press Expo? I don't, I've been... I've, I've been there multiple times. I covered it. I would go and i interview everybody. Yeah. I, every person with mini comics really? stands. Yeah. I used to go every year. Huh. I used to, I went every year, too, and I miss um, it so, so yeah. much. It's great. I yeah. would table with uh, Buenaventura. Oh, okay. When I was there. I think I went 2008, 2009. Yeah. Oh, my... I, yeah, just, just a little after we I just had, missed each I, other. We just missed each other. Well, now we're talking. So <laughs> you went to UCLA, and, yes. and you wanted to become a part of the comics community? Is that what well, how you ended up in Greenpoint? Or? Eventually. I, when, I, when I was at UCLA, I thought I wanted to be like a studio artist, like an actual gallery painter, and that's what they were sort of grooming me to be, but... Um, I guess once I graduated and didn't immediately become a famous painter with solo shows in Chelsea, I was like, oh, I guess I'll just keep making these comics that I make at Kinko's and um, write with my friends. And uh, yeah, then eventually I got more into the comic scene as I started going to conventions and I met my first publisher and uh-huh. Uh, yeah. So it was really like kind of an accidental existence going into... Car- I mean, I, I yeah, read one interview where you said you weren't, you didn't feel that you were a cartoonist. Oh, really? Uh, yes. Did I say that? You said that in 2010. Oh, I guess I changed my mind about you that. You are officially a, lot. a cartoonist. Yeah, I do. I mean, I make comics. If people ask me if I'm an artist, an illustrator, or a cartoonist, I say that I'm all three. Uh-huh. Um, and depending on my mood, I'll introduce myself as one of the three. You, and you can't just call yourself a hyphenate or something. <laughs> no, it's just too complicated. And by at that point, people, their eyes start to wander and they lose interest in talking to me. So, <laughs> so what was the first animal humanoid figure that you ever drew i was curious about that there throughout your work and uh and and i'm wondering when you started putting say lizard heads on regular people or pop cultural figures things like that i started drawing cats uh as people when i was like five or six Mm -hmm. and i was drawing myself i um that was what i wanted to be when i grew up was a black cat that was also a human who wore an orange Hawaiian shirt because I was really into Weird Al Yankovic at the time. Oh, yeah. Um, so I would draw myself portrait as a, as like a black kitty cat. And um, then later I started drawing horses as people when I was like, I was like seven, eight. I know you were a horse girl. What does that entail? Did you ride horses? Did you enact 
a life as a horse? Did you yeah. do a lot of horse sounds, neigh, and all that? Or? Yeah, I was a cat girl until I took my first riding lesson ah. at eight, and it like set off like a bomb in my brain, and I just was like, horses, horses, horses. I want to marry a horse. I want to be a horse. I just want to, and that's you always... want to marry a horse. Yeah, I used to want to marry a horse. I asked my mom if I could, and she was like, maybe that will be legal someday. She had a very um, a lax view on bestiality. <laughs> I you know. guess. Now I'm Interspecies like, relations. I didn't know at the time that marrying kind of meant you were like sexually partnered. I just wanted to like be... <laughs> oh, it was a more romantic image. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was only six, so I just wanted... Or, or eight. I just wanted to be linked with a horse forever. Um, and It's sort of that moment where you're playing with Barbie and Ken in the dream house. Then all of a sudden you realize, oh, they're actually going to have sex as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you figure that part out later. <laughs> um, but yeah, I made a lot of horse noises. I drew horses. I crawled around on all fours a lot. Do you make horse noises to this very day? Um, I can make like a snorting sound. Oh, that's pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty good. So, so, <laughs> so, so, here's the question. I mean, if you were riding horses, did you envision some future at some point where you would be some kind of Kentucky Derby jockey of some kind? I or? never wanted to be a jockey because it's very dangerous and it's also not the best for the horses. It's yeah. like a little bit cruel. Um, even though I do like watching horse races and think they're really exciting. Um, I don't know. I just. I never had, like, a plan. Uh, I just wanted to be around them. Yeah. Did you ever play horse on a basketball court? Uh, no. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. And now you're talking with Mr. Ed, so there you go. <laughs> um, so I also know that your parents were both scientists. Yeah. What kind of impact did this have on you? Because there's a lot of lists and charts and bullet points in your work, which leads me to wonder if there was some sort of taxonomic thing in the gen- genotype here. Um. Yeah, I think they 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 raised me to be interested in nature. They're biologists. Mm-hmm. They both study DNA. Oh, that would explain the animals big time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we had these big books in our house of like um, very illustrated guides to dinosaurs. Oh, I'm sorry, it's my phone. And oh, yeah. and an illustrated guide to fruits and vegetables. Oh, really? Um, yeah. And we would read them like every day. Mm-hmm. And so I think I I learned to appreciate that sort of uh, scientific, beautiful guide to the world and understanding the world through illustration. Mm-hmm. Well, this leads me to ask you about like the single comic strip section in this book because they almost read as weird syllogisms, especially when you have like the three different points mm-hmm. and you kind of come to some weird narrative conclusion that doesn't quite make sense, but that also kind of does make sense. <laughs> and and I'm wondering, you know, how you corral this kind of, I suppose, systematic innate attempt to, to unite information or things that you see into something that is small or do you, do you need like a small space to kind of contain a narrative or what this? ordinarily I like unlimited space yeah. and that's how most of my work functions but in that case I mean it, it was for the believer magazine mm-hmm. so it had to be contained within a small space and it was really difficult but it's kind of nice to have those constraints sometimes in artwork you come up with more interesting things sometimes yeah. if you have a couple of rules in place is is that one of your major problems that you have unlimited space sometimes and this kind of yeah. gets in the way of kind of wrapping something up or finding a an angle here to Not really because I think I've uh over the years developed a sense of when something is long enough mm-hmm. when I need to you know with like the movie reviews and stuff they could go on forever really yeah. and um like my toy fair piece is quite long but um that 
that calls for it. I mean, that it's appropriate in that situation. I didn't even know that the vow actually existed as a movie because it was it was such a bizarre plot line. And then I realized, oh, actually, it is a movie. It was something I somehow missed. Based on a real life story. Well, that's based the, on as a true all the story. Yeah. 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 Um, I think yeah. Star Trek Into Darkness was based on a true story too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, the vow was crazy because I went on Thursday night, opening night, and it was just packed with screaming, oh. screaming women. <laughs> packed with screaming women. Yeah, all there to the see The ideal Shannon conditions Tatum. to see cinema. Yes. <laughs> yeah. it, was, it was pretty fun. Well, I, I wanted to ask you about this as your dog continues to lick me rather like, amicably. Um, <laughs> She's so the, sweet. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, uh, the, the, the movie reviews are very uh, sentence-driven, and I'm wondering um, what comes first. Do Are you basically kind of writing, uh, sketching various illustrations, and then what comes first, the sentences? Uh, or the... the writing actually yeah. comes first. Um, while I'm watching the movie, I'll take notes, or I'll, I'll just scribble down some notes immediately after getting home, and then I write it out in rough draft form. And then it, as I'm writing it, I start to think of, of images to go along with it. Mm-hmm. And I'll even write out what the images should look like often, uh, and then I'll start sketching and uh, then start editing the two things together. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting because there's one particular sketch in the War Horse review where you have basically a human riding a human like a jockey. Yeah. And you basically say, you know, why did I draw this? Yeah. So this, I mean, this this leads me to wonder if you couldn't actually find an explanation for why you actually created that sketch or what here? That sketch is kind of embarrassing because it's about how I think, I imagine I'm a horse while I'm running. Yeah. And then sometimes I'll like imagine that I'm a rider too. So it's like I'm riding myself and there's something super embarrassing and weird about that. And it's also very revealing. So um, captioning it with why did I draw this is kind of like, why am I telling you that? Why am I showing? Why are you sharing? Yeah. Why am I sharing? You know, I I don't know. It's something about that really cracks people up. Yeah. <laughs> I think the caption works. <laughs> well, this leads me to ask. I mean, you're, it seems to me, and I'm, I'm just going to speculate here, but I'm hoping to get an answer from you, that when you venture into these sort of surrealistic realms, mm-hmm. that you are getting into something that is extremely personal. And I'm wondering if that surrealism allows a kind of accessibility to certain private thoughts that you might feel perhaps shameful of or embarrassed by that allows you to kind of come to terms with them and also simultaneously get people to enjoy them. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I really love diary comics, but I've never successfully made them. Really? Like I don't I don't draw myself that often. Um, yeah, I noticed that. Most of my work is not... If if the most autobiographical pieces, I draw myself as a moose. I mean, it's very veiled. Um, but yeah, the surrealism is a way to sort of get into my psyche. And people respond to it really personally. Like with the writing myself drawing, like you wouldn't believe how many people emailed me and tweeted at me and wrote me messages to say that they also think of horses when they're running and yeah. or they look out the car window and imagine horses. So... I don't know, it's interesting to connect with people on that. I really didn't expect that. So in a way, you're almost giving people permission to vocalize these associations that we all have. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I mean, so then in that case, why don't you draw yourself? Why can't you humanize them? Have you made attempts to do that? Yeah, I've made attempts. I actually have a couple of rough comics right now that I'm thinking of fleshing out where I, I show myself. It's still in a very jokey distanced way i um i can't write about myself in a personal way the way like i don't know my friend julia wertz she can write about herself also san francisco yeah yes and she can make it so funny um 
but I just can't do it the way she does. You know, she just has a knack for it. She can turn her and she can draw herself in like this simplified cartoon way. And I also have trouble doing that. Do you have a, an aversion or reluctance to sharing yourself in this oversharey age? I mean, and I, I certainly do. The idea of constantly describing what's going on in our inner psyche for people to go ahead and do a plus one for. I mean, that's yeah. got to be nerve-wracking. Maybe part of it also yeah. is just worrying about whether I'm even that interesting. It's like, uh, mm-hmm. I'm like a white girl living in Brooklyn who makes art, like, you know. Uh, but but voice is what transcends that kind that's of true. generic identity. And observations allow that to be fleshed out. Right, which I think is why, you know, most of my observations tend to lean towards the surreal and maybe I'm trying to get at something that hasn't been said before or shown before. Huh. I don't know. <laughs> well, I'm working on it. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about the way you actually uh, illustrate pop culture because mm-hmm. normally I-, I can be really annoyed by an artist who may wow a little too much in pop culture. And yeah, uses that I as am access. too. Yeah, and but- I worry about that. I worry about the longevity of, mm-hmm. of when I do that and whether these the movie reviews in particular, whether they're going to be interesting 10 years down the line. I have no idea. Um, So I try not to lean on it too much, but I am absorbing a lot of pop culture, and so it makes sense to reflect that. But when you turn Jeff Goldblum into a raptor from Jurassic Park, and when you have lizards hanging on the DeLorean from Back to the Future, it seems to me that you are responding in some almost rebellious way to pop culture or some sort of major movie which is essentially inviolable because it's not going to go away so therefore you have permission to go ahead and turn it into something completely strange or to react possibly in opposition to it would you say that's the case for some of these things or yeah i guess i just feel free to to take um things like that like the delorean i mean i grew up with that delorean it's like part of me so i feel like i have the right to just kind of take that and put it into any new environment that i want to draw it in Mm -hmm. um (laughs) <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Just just to be clear, there, we're, we were dealing with a very adorable dog who requires attention and, and is coming to me to be constantly petted. Can, so I'm multitask. No, I don't mind. I can I, it's call actually, her off if you want. It's totally fine. This actually Indy. puts this keeps me on my toes. Indy, no. Um, so you, um, I wanted to actually go back to this idea of pop culture because uh, in the you know in the Bachelor. You are condemning the editors for pancaking personalities or erasing the opinions of these contestants. Yeah. So this also leads me to wonder if your reviews are in some way a protest against mass culture. That because you can actually show how preposterous and how surreal these apparent presentations of ourselves are on TV and, and are on film, that we are in turn supposed to consume without question. It's almost as if you're kind of show, sort of throwing a little bit of a Molotov here, I would say. Oh, thank you. Uh, yeah, That's I mean, very flattering. I, yeah. um, I guess in general, I'm a very critical person. I, I love really dumb things. I yeah. love Michael Bay movies, but I'm also, I can watch things like that and pick out what's really terrible about them and yeah. absurd and what is um, really hackneyed and stereotypical and like where people are being lazy. And um, especially with reality TV, I feel like a lot of people watch reality TV and think that it's real. Yeah. I even mean, though it's the it's it's the most scripted form of television that exists right now, even more yeah. so than multi episode story arcs and season arcs and things yeah. like that, it's yeah. the most unreal thing. Yeah. Um. I mean, I've known people who worked on those shows, and it's literally scripted. Yeah. And they just concoct these stories out of nothing. Um. So you know, I mean, I, I guess actually most people know that now, but it is fun to point out where that's very glaringly obvious. Um. And I don't know, maybe the girls on that show are really boring, but. 
I don't know, something about how they flatten them. It's just, I don't know. Yeah, but how do you manage to, I suppose, unseat the assumptions? I mean, we live in a world where you have things like NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour or mm-hmm. even worse, Slate's Pop Culture Gab Fest. Oh, I love where that. Pe- well, well, but the thing is, is that people are clinging desperately, like, this is the way to live, to just constantly dissect pop culture, to yeah. often in a way that was even beyond what the filmmakers ever intended. Yeah, I do get a bit yeah. bored with recapping. Yeah. Um, it's funny, though, because sometimes I'll, I'll there'll be a particular recapper who's so funny that it, it transcends. I don't even need to watch the show to yeah. enjoy their recaps. Um but it is weird how we're so obsessed with dissecting every episode of every show or drama that we're watching now. And yeah, I don't know what that's about. That's like a new thing, right? Oh, um, it's, as long as television without pity has been around. Yeah. I mean, here, do you think that actually responding in an artistic way is a way to avoid becoming trapped in that kind of life? I mean, there are people who really should be writing things beyond pop culture who yeah. are doing nothing for their bread and butter but, like, watching television and describing it. And it's just like, you know... Oh. Uh, oh. Should I yeah, go grab that? Gra- yeah, sure, no problem. Sorry. No, no problem. Sorry about that. Oh, no, no worries. No worries. We'll, uh... Wait, this is... So, um... I was asking you about whether your art is sort of a way to transcend the trap of being a cultural writer. Or That's a, a good question. Critic. I think it's a way to make it last longer too, because when you recap a TV show, like people are going to read it that first week, that first month, but are people really going to read it two years from then? Yeah. It just, it feels. I mean, maybe everything we do is like sort of fleeting, and it's you know. But if I if I make it personal. Like, if I talk about Warhorse and I talk about what it means to me, yeah. um, I feel like that's a way to extend the life of whatever I've created. Or it's a way to avoid that kind of recap umbrella. Or yeah. it's avoid that tedious review. You're actually writing a personal essay and this is just the jumping off point. That's part of the joke about them is yeah. that they're not quite movie reviews Yes, strictly. Like, they're about how I see the movie. Yeah. They're, yeah, it's like a diary entry or something. How, how recent was the Toy Fair uh, report? I was curious. That was about a year ago. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Yeah. So was that a way to kind of get away from the uh, from what Harlan Ellison has called the glass teat in terms of television? <laughs> I, I, that, you know, actually getting out into the real world and responding to something that is tangible, that is physical. Because we yeah. see that, like, you know, by being associated with Chia, there's a weird kind of snobbery, which I was like, wow, I had no idea. Yeah, that was yeah. interesting. Yeah. I do kind of like, I love um, being in an environment with a certain culture that I've never been in before, particularly yeah. like, I love conventions. I mean, they're gross, like I kind of hate them, but but just like having people be so specifically there for one specific thing is interesting to me. And um, I'd, I'd sort of, I was like, okay, I've done like five of these movie reviews. I've kind of figured out how to do this. I wonder if I can apply this same approach to something totally different. Um, so now I'm kind of working on some other pieces that are not TV or film related at all, and um, but kind of using that same approach. Yeah. Have you thought of going beyond a toy fair, like into another town or even possibly a war zone? I mean, we're not at that point yet. But I mean, have you thought of like really pushing that limit further to really investigate what it is to live in America or in the world at large? Um, maybe eventually. I don't know if I'm brave enough to go into a war zone. Yeah, I mean my uh, my friend Sarah Glidden is a she does journalism comics and she's so brave and she goes to places like Israel and Syria and like 
these really dangerous places, but I just, um, oh, I didn't mean that Israel's all dangerous, but, um, well, it's pretty dangerous. With, some parts of yeah. it. Um, I just, I, I, I'd have to think about an interesting way for me to do it because I'm not a, a travel journalist. Like that's like its own thing. And there's people who are really good at that. So I'd have to think about what I would even bring to that. Um, but well, yeah. you're an introvert, probably going into these locations, and so as a result, yeah. that becomes a lot. That becomes a lot of energy, and like you have to kind of go up to somebody and sort of ask them about something. And yeah, yeah, that's the yeah. hardest thing for me is, um, yeah, talking to to strangers. I mean, it's I'm very shy about that. So, so, so the toy fair was really the first time you actually like really threw yourself out there and actually started talking with people and putting this into your art. Yeah, it helped yeah. that I brought my friend Tim Kreider along with me, so I had sort of a friend to back me up. Yeah, yeah. Um, but even then, I was shy talking to people. Yeah. Um, and my interactions with them were awkward. <laughs> Which, how much do you have to sort of think about something before you put it down on paper or? Be- think about something before you actually say oh maybe this might be a fun little adventure i could turn into a comic or a or a story or something i don't know i've um for that one the turnaround was pretty quick um maybe i had the comic done like a month and a half after the festival but um i don't know i went to a car and motorcycle show um about a month ago and i'm still trying to think about whether it's it's worth making a piece about and i i have written down some bullet points that i didn't want to forget about what the show was like um but I, that one i might sit on for a year before it actually turns into something yeah do you see these as a form of comics journalism or is it just your way of trying to take in the world and give something back i guess it is sort of like comics journalism but um it's journalism in in the same way as i mean not that i w- would ever compare myself to david foster wallace but when he writes about going on a cruise or something yeah. like there's a certain amount of fiction in that or a certain amount of uh it's like a story about him really yeah. it's more about him than about the thing he's doing then um, if you're going to take this metaphor further what would your comics answer be to his endnote or his footnotes oh <laughs> uh I don't know if I can if I can have anything that compares to that. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's probably my favorite writer. <laughs> yeah. Well, a big favorite of mine too. So I mean, going back to the anthropomorphized animals yes. and what you were alluding to earlier that you don't draw yourself, but you draw an animalized version of yourself. Yeah, I mean, often I do. What is 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 that a form of armor? Is that a form of Hey, my private life is my own. Is that a uh, how, what does this do? What is, how does how does this actually get you into the truth of capturing a human moment? It's it's like a barrier. It's definitely like a protective thing. Also, some if yeah, if I'm if the comic is about something super personal, like my struggling with my creative process or something stupid like that, um, <laughs> I I feel almost disgusted by the thought of drawing myself with my face yeah. saying those things. Um, like some of those conversations come out of real life. Um, so drawing a moose and a cat just makes it so much easier somehow. Yeah. It's like, oh, this is this is not me. This is like a scene between these two characters that I made up. And yet what's interesting is is that there's often this sort of free ribald sexuality in the work as well, which I find quite funny. Where, yeah. you know, you're you're more than happy to go ahead and show the honest truth of, of what people do with their wedding registry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know of, if anyone's well, ever done that. I, but... I know a few actually. I found I'm not gonna tell you how I found out, but uh, it does it does go on. Um you know, so on one hand you have this very um this great desire I think to explore 
what is just funny without kind of a filter on it, and yet you're putting a filter upon yourself. What do you think there's this kind of uh, uh, differing level? Is it just that when you chronicle other people, you have no problem going ahead and doing it all? Or Well, what? they're not specific people that I'm chronicling or, to. Or fictitious like, characters, yeah. They're gen- like the, the people I draw in, in things like the wedding registry thing, they're so generic looking. They could really be anyone, really. And um, so you can kind of project whoever you want onto them almost. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I just I don't draw very many specific people in my comics. I'm trying to think unless they're like celebrities or like I get the permission of my friend to draw him. In... Oh, you seek permission of all friends. Yeah, like when my friend Tim in the Toy Fair piece, like I got his permission and You're in this. Yeah. <laughs> You're coming at this with me. Can I please draw yeah. you? <laughs> um Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting to think about why I'm I'm protecting myself so much. Yeah. I'm trying. I am. I am getting used to drawing myself a little bit more and more in a more cartoony way. But do you think the world really has the right to see you put yourself into your comic strip? Because a lot of cartoonists do that, and a lot of graphic novelists have to go down that particular road. And you don't necessarily have to. You're yeah. not obligated. And sometimes it's really good, and yeah. and you want to see that. And sometimes it's not good at all, and it's too much. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I guess I'll do it if it if the story calls for it. But otherwise, I'd prefer to take a step back from my work it's also hard if you if you draw yourself in your work like that and you're revealing something about yourself and then somebody criticizes it it's like they're criticizing you i mean it's very hard to make that separation yeah so it's a way of protecting myself if someone says like i hate this moose in this story like she's so whiny and she's just complaining about nothing and she needs to get over herself it's like yeah yeah, yeah, she does. <laughs> but it seems to, it seems to me if you were actually talking about things that are inside yourself, uh, deep inner psyche moments, and someone goes ahead and disses them on Twitter, then this is going to be you're going to take this totally personal, which is why you're gravitating more towards say going to toy fairs or just doing something funny in relation to pop culture. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Even with a toy fair piece, I am trying to reveal something about myself. It's I I don't want it to be all like fun and jokes, but yeah. I mean mostly yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know in. Uh, is, is there a, is there some sort of variety of in, in vino veritas where you could say in vino humorous or something? I, I don't know. <laughs> there is now. Um, yeah, I guess there is now. Um, not, you know, not that you're necessarily drinking wine when you're cracking jokes. <laughs> but, <laughs> Often, yes. <laughs> so you mentioned this incident in which a college sculpture professor got worked up over how strange and enigmatic horses are, yeah. continually repeating, "What is it about their faces?" Yeah, her name um, is. Uh, oh, should I name her? Well, if you she, like, you, it's it's up to you. Wanju. She's a Wanju. Huh? Yeah, she's a she's a sculptor and. And she does architectural stuff, and yeah, she's a very talented artist. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I want to ask because it's sort of like a situation where either this is a bad stand-up act, <laughs> what's the deal with horses' faces, or no, it's... it wasn't like that. Huh. It was, it was like she just, it was like she short-circuited for a second. It was fascinating. <laughs> really, she couldn't accept the horse's face on its own terms. I don't know. She just, it, it was like. At first, it was like she was asking us as a class, like, what do we think it is about the horse's face? And I tried to answer, but then she just kept repeating, what is it about the face? Um, I mean, me and my Demanding friend... some significant answer from all students or yeah, something? Yeah, I wow. don't know, yeah. but it was like a rhetorical question. It was fantastic. Oh. Me and my friends repeated it a lot after that. <laughs> we still say it. <laughs> to this very day. Yeah. In fact, you asked before you even said hello when I came in. You asked me, "What's the deal with the horse's face?" What's it? Um, <laughs> no, but but I mean, this leads me to ask: Did you have any uh, terrible lessons that you you learned from college, or things that kind of got in the way of you creating art? Uh, you know, lean, lean this kind of obstacles of what something means as opposed to just 
expressing it. I think my worst teachers were the ones who were too nice, honestly, because <laughs> I didn't learn anything from them. The ones who were kind of mean or challenging to yeah. me were the best teachers I had. I mean, I had one, uh, my professor, Walid, um, at, during one of my critiques, he he just said, yeah, but why should I give a fuck? <laughs> while gesturing towards my photos. Wow. And it was really hurtful, but he had a big point and I learned a lot from it. So, but you're not entirely inured from criticism. Um, I'm not entirely what? Inured from criticism. Oh, like... Inoculated or... Um, no, I mean, I'm super sensitive. Yeah. Well, the thing is, if somebody criticizes me and I think like, oh, that's actually a good point, I actually agree with that, then that's one thing. But if they completely disagree yeah. with, with me, then that's where I start to feel out of control and I like struggle with that for a day. Yeah. How much uh, sculpting have you done out of curiosity? Uh, I was really big into ceramics yeah. for a while, and every once in a while I will take a break from... I, I wish I did... Indy, she just did her one bark yes. for the day. I um, know, she's been totally silent <laughs> up until this moment. We were remarking upon this earlier. Yeah, It's one bark a day. One uh, bark. That's her allowance. Um, we'll come back here six hours later to see if that holds up. Yeah. <laughs> just check in. Um I I wish I did more sculpture. I actually... it's I do have to, like say okay i'm taking a break now from two-dimensional work um like i did these <laughs> taking a break from two-dimensional work. yeah it's like a really different mindset um i could just imagine spock throwing up the three-dimensional chess set and saying you know i've had enough of this let's go to two dimensions yeah <laughs> it's like that yeah um i'm not like a good sculptor like when i make three-dimensional things they're just sort of weird and funny they're not like profound or beautiful really but um I don't know. It, it feels good to make something with your hands. So you need to kind of do a cross-disciplinary approach in terms of uh, not just making it, but also kind of what you read and all this. Because the sense I get, especially with the last story in the book with the whole car crash and all oh, that, yeah. that seemed to me less inspired from uh, comic books and more from like movies. Yeah. And, and not just because of the whole drive review that preceded yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, what of this? I mean, uh, do you also need to take a break from two dimensions in terms of what you take in? I, how does this work? How do you stay fluid and how do you keep things percolating on several fronts? I mean, yeah, I, I do. I don't read that many comics, if that's what you're wondering. I um, I, I love comics, but I, I definitely go through long stretches of time where I don't read any of them. And I feel like if I read them all the time, then my work will just sort of, it'll be impossible to not think about the comics that I've read when I'm making my own comics. So I feel like part of my approach has always been coming from a different angle where I'm not, you know, I didn't grow up reading Marvel and DC and stuff like that. I mean, I, I read like The Far Side and yeah. um, so I, I get as much inspiration from movies and, and stand-up comedy as I do from comics. Yeah. Well, you're indoctrinated, I think, in the stand-up world because you've got the podcast. I know right. you've got friends who are comics. And yes, so, my you know, boyfriend as well. Yeah, yeah. So, so does this feed into the collected... I mean, how does this feed in more so than comics? Uh, co just cartooning for you. I think I'm just interested in what is funny mm -hmm. and being around funniness in general. I always have been, so it's just natural that I would want to side myself with alongside comedians in that yeah. culture, even though I'm, I'm not a stand-up comedian and I don't think I ever would be. <laughs> I'm wondering if you thought of following up on why Chia was so maligned in the toy industry, why Playmobil <laughs> was just saying, ah, Chia, steering their noses, noses down. It wasn't like that. It was just like, it was just humorous. Like most of them, when I said Chia, they immediately just thought of Chia pets. Yeah. Whereas, um, 
I mean, people who are involved with Chia right now, it's for it's like a nutritional thing. Like it's like a superfood or whatever. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It was weird. It huh. was definitely weird. Did you encounter any other kinds of, um, uh, I suppose, censures against certain companies at the toy fair? <laughs> like someone there was just, ah, yeah, Play-Doh, right. Yo, go, go take a number. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the bigger companies were definitely more important and definitely, like, knew it, walked around like they owned the place, whereas yeah. all the little ones were downstairs. There was definitely, like, a segregation between important companies and non-important, like, like, you know, this guy just took out his uh, son's college fund to pay for his, yeah. uh, like, weird, stupid idea that's never going to become a thing. Um, guys from Hasbro Mattel walking around in shark suits acting as if they own the place. Pretty much. Exactly. Yeah. Kiss my ring finger. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Barbie, bitch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, wow. I'm like, what? You just make Legos. Like, yeah. <laughs> get over yourself. But, I mean, the, within... And that's why I like being within those, like, little tiny subcultures. Because within them, there's people who really yeah. think they're the king and queen. Like, yeah. So it it's sounds fascinating to, to me. It sounds to me that you have an interest almost in, in power structures. And yet, yeah. it, that's not quite what came out in, in the actual work. I mean, it almost seems to me like you could do like a really in- interesting breakdown of, say, something political or uh, some kind of socioeconomic thing. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm wondering, your stuff isn't really political, but I'm wondering why it is, why you haven't actually gone down that road. It's funny. I've never really had a head for, for politics or or history or economics or anything like I find it very difficult to keep track of what's going on politically and I'll get I'll dip into it sometimes like when an election's coming up I'll get really into into it but I just um I actually I am going to start making more comics that uh comment on current events in politics that's uh one project I have in the works oh okay um that I can't describe too much right now but <laughs> but I mean I'm wondering if you actually like went and had a specific angle on a story. I mean, you can you can be, um, I guess, both political and apolitical if you're just looking at a power structure. I yeah. found this myself when I've I've stumbled onto power structures I didn't even know existed. Yeah. And then you start talking with everybody and you actually are able to reveal it. And then visually, I, I can't even imagine what, what wonders you could do if you were actually to look at something exclusively from a power structure. I, yeah. Especially it, if you have a knack for observing this kind of stuff. Yeah, it would be interesting to try. Um I definitely wouldn't rule out doing that in the future. It's it's hard when when commenting on specific um, uh, like events or or thing you know like gay marriage or drones yeah, or yeah. or things like that. I, I always I never feel like I'm the smartest person to comment on things like that. Yeah. Um, but maybe I will try. <laughs> so you you would rather be so someone who has really done the research in advance and then you go into a situation and then you actually if you were to do more hypothetical comics journalism that would be the better situation for you i guess so yeah i'm not sure or maybe or maybe it would be better to present myself as an idiot who knows nothing and then just see what comes of that i mean for david foster wallace yeah it's definitely worked for me in my past pieces i never go in having researched something so yeah (laughs) um so my understanding is that for one commercial piece contained in this book uh, that involved the New York Times. The New York Times vetoed butt turkey and replaced it with bottom turkey. Oh, yeah, that's right. So how does the limitations of a family newspaper help you as an artist? Uh, have you noticed a kind of detente against ribald humor in recent months with some of the august publications you've worked with? Or? Uh, it depends on the publication, and I actually think the New York Times is really cool about things like that, and they like to push the butt, push the envelope a little bit with a... I said push the butt. Um, push the butt as push well. Push the butt. With, the butt, the button. The butt can be used to push the butt. Yes. Um, 
I think that they they get illustrators who can make sort of you know ribald work or work a little blue and then reel them in just a little bit but just enough so the work is still very interesting and um it's it's like I said it's nice to have limitations sometimes it forces you to work more creatively um and sometimes just drawing like a dick or a boob or something in a comic it's um it's just an easy way to get a laugh and and yet there are many asses in your work yeah there's a lot of butts butts are always funny um but if I can't do that then it yeah, it forces me to use my brain a little more. Huh. I think. So, if can I, if I can still make something funny without doing any of that, I've really, I feel like I've really succeeded. But you haven't uh, cured yourself, I suppose. I mean, that's like cure. Cure sounds like we're trying to like, <laughs> take you to like a gay reprogramming camp or something. Um, we haven't actually. You you haven't actually uh, divested yourself of that particular impulse in your humor. No, but I mean, sometimes it's fun to like reel it in for a couple of commercial jobs and then really like unleash it in my personal work. Yeah. Um, to kind of keep going back and forth between those extremes. So when you have a commercial gig, are there any particular things you won't do as an artist? Like, are there specific clients who you would not go to? Or are there specific things you would not draw if asked? What's How do you balance that relationship between, I suppose, artistic integrity and, you know, paying the rent? It's a good question. I haven't um, met with that yet, but I know illustrators who have, and they have a real dilemma, and they're not quite sure whether they should take a job or not. Um my own stance is if I if I take a job for a big company that supports um, like their their pro life or something, I would take a certain percent of my income from that job and donate it to Planned Parenthood or whatever I whatever I believe in. Huh. Um, that's just my I would still take the job though, and yeah. that's just my way of confronting that guilt and and standing up for what I believe in while still I'm I mean I'm an artist so I have to work and whatever job comes in, it's like, sometimes you just got to take it. So if the Westboro Church basically said, hey, we need you to draw something for us, I mean, would you say no to that? Or? I'm not sure. I'm not huh. sure. I you, probably would say no. But you would otherwise pretty much take any gig, even no matter what corporate involvement or whatnot. If I needed it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And a lot of corporations, it's kind of mixed. Like, they'll do good things and donate to charity, but then they'll also don- donate to, like, something I really don't believe in. So, I don't know. It's not always black and white, yeah. whether they're good or bad. Sure. Um, Walmart is probably, probably wouldn't work for them. <laughs> gotcha. Um, you said that your dad used to read comics to you every yeah. Sunday, and then there was a lot of B. Kilbin in the house. So, yeah. uh, I'm wondering, given that we were talking earlier about this, about how you're not really a full-blown comics reader. I mean, how do you how are you guided by this kind of intermedial focus taking in television, films, comics, books? I mean, you know, how does how does this relate in terms of, you know, what what it's what floats your boat versus like, you know, what you observe around you? I mean, you know, do you leave the house much? It's hard to say specifically how all those different influences synthesize when they're in my head because I mean, I'm constantly watching TV and movies and I'm reading books. And so it's like, I, I'm not sure what, what percentage of what is influencing me. But um, I, in general, am someone who does not leave the house. And in fact... Have, when was the last time you left the house? Oh, I mean, now I do because yeah. I'm getting better. I actually, now I work in a studio outside oh, okay. my house. So I leave the house pretty much every day. And um, 
especially now that I'm like preparing for my book tour, I've been like running around like crazy doing You're really going to leave the house there, yeah. Yeah, um, I've gotten better at it, but like about a year or two ago, I I mean, I get agoraphobic and it gets real bad if I don't leave the house. I found yeah. out like I, especially in this city, it's just, it can be so overwhelming to go out and you have to take the train and like... Um, How long have you been here in Greenpoint? I've been in Brooklyn for four years and uh, Greenpoint for nearly three Okay, so are you kind of at the place where you went through like the three levels of hating New- the three years of hating New York, and then you love it? Have you have you gone through that yet? Or I still it- I still kind of hate it sometimes. Oh, okay, but, um, you're, you're at just at the turning point then, basically. No, I love it. There's certain things I really love about it. Like it is easy to get around, and if you do go out, there's so much to do, and it's exciting. But um, I just miss the weather in California. Yeah. It's so nice and. Um, I miss driving in my car and being in my own private protected bubble. That's what I had <laughs> yeah. to get used to is is being on public transportation, which frightens me, and being yeah. surrounded by people at all times, which is very alien to me. Oh, so you had not taken any public transportation when you oh, were in California? Oh, no, I have. Or, I yeah. have. I just, you know, I mean, in LA, I had a car, so I yeah. took my car everywhere. And here it's like, oh, wow, I really have to depend on the train to get me where I'm going. And sometimes the train fails at that, and that's yeah. very stressful for me, and... Um, I feel like a rat when I'm in the subway system. Is it an issue more of control or just kind of wanting to kind of be in your own universe? It's a control thing, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, just, yeah. If my, my worst fear is really like being stuck on a train down there. Just the feeling of being claustrophobic and stuck. <laughs> it's pretty bad. That would be an amazing little comic strip, especially in light of how you dealt with your fear of flying. You yeah. Know? yeah. I mean, I've drawn a lot of very sad scary drawings about the subway (laughs) especially when i first moved here and now i've confronted that fear and i take the subway like almost every day but but you haven't collected them in the two issues or even this book no no they were sort of standalone art pieces okay um yeah i mean the subway is a wonderful place for these kinds of like you know cheerfully funny apocalyptic kind of environment right i mean nobody likes it but for most people it's not a big deal it just gets them where they need to go but for a long time i didn't need to go anywhere so i would just stay in my house and not take the subway ever and then when i did take the subway on rare occasion it would be terrifying yeah so that became a problem i I wanted to ask you how uh we talked about how you put up the sort of animalistic armor but i actually wanted to ask you about your use of colors in two stories in this book Mm -hmm. extra egg room you have the pinks and you have the light greens yeah and my understanding that that started from a sketch uh while you were flying yeah then you have like the color scheme and therapy with deer dog and pancakey uh, did <laughs> the colors almost turn the stories more surreal in these points i mean you know what happened here do you find that once you're locked into a deeply personal story especially one that is driven by fear or anxiety in some way that you need to add colors or add animalistic crazy guts and stuff like that or, i mean what, what what happens here i'm really curious both those stories were originally printed in black and white um but yeah with the with the horse on the airplane one uh extra egg room um i don't know i i tend to go for like kind of sickly greens and blues in a lot of my work if i have the choice um and something about that color is unsettling like something eerie is about to happen or um it's not it's not the most comforting color so i guess that's why i went for it mm-hmm. i don't know we're getting into some real like intuitive things that i have trouble uh, verbalizing yeah color is like something i 
I didn't start out being good at color and I worked in black and white exclusively and now I'm I'm very color based. So I'm I'm learning as I go along why I use the colors I use and what effect that has on people when they look at things. So here's the question, when did you know that you could actually do color or that actually you had the confidence to find the right hue to get the right mood? I mean, I've always loved using color. I've just slowly gotten better at it. I've never really questioned whether it was okay. But for comics, it's it's also a financial issue. Like you, printing color is expensive. So my first few comics, I could only print black and white. Um, but yeah, now I have free reign to use color, hopefully forever. <laughs> it's just, it, in some ways, it, it it's better to start out using black and white because it limits your choices and you have to make the drawing stronger. Mm-hmm. Um, you can sort of mask a lot of bad drawing with color. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, it's just so beautiful <laughs> and fun. Got you. So there's loads of white space in uh, rumors I've heard about Anna Winter, how we can tell Martha Sturt's drunk, tips for living with a significant other, mm-hmm. the wedding registry pages we were talking about earlier. I don't like drawing backgrounds. <laughs> oh, okay. Because I was thinking like this was sort of your response in, in a certain way to the kind of pristine Apple advertisements where you see like an iPad that's actually oh, being done. that's interesting. And, and, and that you're kind of setting up the reader for like, hey, here's a perfectly uh, clean, pristine environment. <laughs> I'm going to lay some really crazy shit on you. <laughs> I wonder if this was part of it. I like that interpretation of it. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I've always liked a crisp white page with like colorful little vignettes mm-hmm. sort of on it. Um and especially with the the wedding registry piece, it's drawn with like colored pencil, and it looks like I drew it with my left hand. Like it's really kind of crudely drawn, so it's fun to have that be on that sparse white background. Um, there's sort of like a contrast there, mm-hmm. and I didn't want to clutter it up with too much background or anything. When I mean, when did you first start using white space like this? I mean, you obviously backgrounds are something you didn't really want to do, but I mean, it seems to me that just quite a lot of you know orphan kind of areas and all that i'm not sure i guess if you're interested in character design or you're drawing a cartoon character you always start out drawing it on a background and then only later do you work it into a um like an actual drawn background um you always start out with that white it's just um i don't know it's just the way i work (laughs) let's talk about your uh your your uh your obsession with the sartorial, or rather your interest in the sartorial. You have Ryan Gosling, you enhance his drive costume. You have the types of fashion in the toy fair. You have polo shirt and khakis, desperation casual with boots babe (laughs) formal. Mm -hmm. Um, Were were these your ways of kind of deepening your uh, observation of the looks of people, that it just can't be about the way that they walk or the way that they move, it also has to be about what they wear and how what they wear creates presence in a room? Yeah, I mean, as as much as I like to scoff at fashion yeah. and the fashion world in general and think that it doesn't matter, it matters a ton. Um, can you hear my dogs licking? Oh, we've been hearing the wonderful sort of occasional... <laughs> lapping at yep, water right know, now. Um, it's it's like a signifier to everyone that you meet what you're all about. Yeah. Um, like, I can tell you're a fan of, of Roger Corman's A Bucket of Blood right now. You know, the dude just followed me on Twitter. I was, like, honored. Really? Yeah, because I found out he was on Twitter, and I, I said, hey, it's Roger Corbin. Then he followed me. I had interviewed him, but I mean, I was like, wait, why is Roger Corbin this legendary guy following me? So I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so looking at your shirt, I can make the assumption that you would be stoked if certain people followed you on Twitter. Yeah, and like, <laughs> exactly. Um, 
it is important. Uh, I, I wish it wasn't. I wish we could all just wear like a black potato sack or something every on, day. On the other hand, I will also uh, actually def- deflate your assumption. I was under the impression that I could walk home. Then I realized that. So I just, any, the, the first random t-shirt I had in my closet I decided to wear, <laughs> uh, which happened to be a bucket of blood, which I then said, oh, actually, this will be kind of funny because I'm talking with an artist. And if you've seen the movie, it's a pretty funny <laughs> movie. Um, but actually, really, it was just because also we were going to be videotaping this. Yeah. And I had no real impression to give you. Oh, yeah. no. And honestly, I, I don't normally pay that much attention to yeah. what people wear unless it's something very beautiful that I would like to own. Yeah. That's one case. Or if it's like, I've, I've been paying more attention to men's clothes lately because my boyfriend is very interested in clothing too. Yes. So I'll sort of be like, oh, what should I tell him to get for himself? And do you guys go shopping together? Or is yeah, he like, oh, we yeah. Love, we love to go shopping together. Do you um, improve his wardrobe? <laughs> yeah, I, I pick out a lot of the things he wears. And he, I mean, we get into fights because every morning he's like, does this look good? Does this look good? He's more into like getting dressed up than I am sometimes. Um, it's really good. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of fun. It is fun. Why, why do you have an aversion to getting dressed up, so to speak? I just... When I was little, I just thought that getting dressed up in a pretty dress was the most fussy, useless thing you could do. And I was so anti getting dressed up. And then only later in life did I realize that, oh, it's actually quite nice sometimes to like look nice. And people treat you better when you're dressed nicely. Um, So I'm slowly learning. But I do still wish I could just wear like a sweater and a pair of jeans every day. Yeah, but you know what? You could actually start a best dressed cartoonist kind of thing. Because <laughs> honestly, this is kind of happening in the literary community. Like, there's guys like Jason Diamond. Um, I'm not sure if you know him. He does. He's no. in Volume One, Brooklyn, and, and this guy dresses up too. And, and I've been dressing up a little bit more as well when I go into some of these uh-huh. things. And you know, it's it's amazing how few artists and writers, I, largely because of finances, but there are ways you could actually dress up and not have to spend that much money. It's hard. Yeah, it yeah. is hard. And also, I would never want to do like a best dressed hot or not kind of thing well, because it just it makes people feel bad and yeah like, I, there's there's best dressed and there's best dressed obnoxious i guess i'm talking just you know you could spruce yourself up a little bit but you don't necessarily have to go ahead and spend six hundred dollars on something yeah, yeah there's definitely like cartoonists who dress very well yeah, johnny yeah. negron is like yeah. always impeccably dressed um <laughs> but and that's I you know. we got on this. <laughs> um, <laughs> and he also draws a lot of sort of fashion stuff yeah. which is interesting but um i would never judge someone for not being interest i guess if i'm they... so glad you didn't judge me no no i mean i guess if someone dresses super schlubby all the time yeah. i'll notice and be like oh actually she's like really pretty she should dress up a little nicer and like yeah. maybe she'd have more self-confidence if she did like that's a real thing but you know i'm not gonna judge someone for not caring about fashion like you know these are very important questions to have when you're drawing a lizard-like character about yes. how they're looking and that can actually you now have a whole bunch of ironies that you can play with. I mean, have you thought about like how your 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 animals are dressed? Yeah, I mean, I I, well, I like when like a like a lizard, which is like a gross kind of not very friendly animal, yeah. is is dressed up in something like outrageous and beautiful. Like, um, I like taking something ugly and making it decorative, or I don't know. I'm still playing with that. Yeah. <laughs> so so how do you deal with people who get really? pissed off at your work i mean you mentioned uh people on twitter earlier but uh it seems to me your voice is your voice your humor is your humor There's most not really people much like it do. yeah I, I actually haven't gotten much guff at all from people <laughs> for what i draw um most of the people who don't like it are are like older relatives of mine yeah honestly um yeah, I, I, every once in a while I'll get a troll, Yeah, <laughs> but it's not something that concerns me. Do you feel that 
a, a real artist has to offend a few people along the way or um they don't have to offend people but they have to not worry about whether or not they're offending people yeah i think that's the difference um I mean, people get offended by anything. I had an illustration in the New York Times of just like a parade coming up out of a subway. Yeah. And like an old man wrote me a letter about it where he's asking me all these questions. And I was like, I'll answer your questions. But like, are you offended by what I drew? And What questions was he asking? Just like, oh, have you ever seen someone wearing this costume before? And like, why did you draw the belly dancer as a dog? And like, and I'm like, Oh my God, does he think I'm racist? Because I did that. Like I drew all kinds of animals and I drew like a man dressed up as a hot dog. It was crazy. And, um, sounds like he just ripped it out of the New York times, you know, had had one too many joints and decided to go ahead and rock and roll on the page. <laughs> I feel like he thought he should be offended, but wasn't quite sure why yet. So he was asking me questions to figure it out. That's yeah. really the the sense I got. Some people just want yeah. to like take offense at anything. Did, so. did you engage with this guy? Yeah, yeah, I answered his questions and I was like, "Are you offended?" And he's like, "I'm not sure yet, but I think so." That's <laughs> wow. what he said. Wow. I'm like, "All right." Do you like hearing back from people in terms of, you know, how they perceive your work, whether it be sort of what you had in mind or not what you had in mind? Yeah. Yeah. I love to hear from anyone. Just the fact that people are reading my work is is really kind of crazy to me. Yeah. It's always interesting. Um, If some people will write me fan letters and they clearly love my work, but they'll just give me compliments in the most backhanded way possible. (laughs) This one person wrote to me and he's like, I feel like if I described your work to anyone, they would think it was really dumb. They'd think it was really <laughs> stupid. His whole his whole email was very like combative. Wow. And then I just I was like, you should probably get better at describing things so it doesn't sound so dumb when you talk. <laughs> how, how, how do you insulate yourself from this shit when you're trying to like grow as an artist, go to more events, uh, yeah. find new ways of drawing lizards? I mean, how, how do you just not let this shit get to you? Oh, it's, I mean, it's hard because you feel like you're put on display and, and people start to feel like they can say anything to you because you're a public figure and because you're putting yourself out there. But I have different ways of dealing it with it. Sometimes I do kind of have to like, like smush my face into the couch and groan for days. But, with the horse noises. Yeah. <laughs> But usually I'll just, I'll forward, if I get an email like that, I'll forward it to my friends who are also cartoonists and be like, what the hell? Yeah. And then we'll all kind of like rag on him for a bit. And they forward messages to you of crazy fans or yeah. people who, yeah. Yeah, it's a big coping mechanism. Oh. Um, and At first I thought, I'm, I'm going to forward this on to my attorney and we will proceed with legal action. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Um, and then like on Twitter you can block people and it's wonderful but it's also sometimes I like to kind of engage a little bit and kind of fight back at them because Mm -hmm. I feel like you know I can I can write a pretty sharp response sometimes and diffuse people. Do you think artists are more vulnerable right now than they have ever been in terms of the separation between the audience and the artist breaking down and being able to basically be free with your voice and express it in the way that just it happens to express itself that we're now getting into a situation where you know there're just more trolls, more crazy motherfuckers who are just going to go ahead. Yeah. And, I mean, know. more people now um everyone's people have always been very opinionated but now people have more platforms to share those opinions and feel like they need to so that's weird like sometimes you you have a certain amount of control over it but sometimes you just can't help it like a guy wrote a really stupid mean review of my comic on his tumblr and then he sent me an email saying like here i wrote a review of your comic so of course i clicked it yeah and i'm like why did he send me this 
that's so because he wanted to get a rise out of you. what a jerk yeah um and yeah i mean i definitely google myself i don't have to yeah i could definitely block myself off from the world and not have a twitter and not engage with my fans but that's just not how i work like i i'm pretty accessible so i have to deal with what comes with that whether it's good or bad do you think though that that's going to kind of get in the way of sort of having a um, a fairly like you know good natured relationship with people? Because I mean, your book you're about to go on book tour. Yeah. Uh, as more people see your work, they may be more inclined to do this kind of thing. I mean, you know, what do you do to circle the wagons? Or have you thought about that? I just put up boundaries. Yeah. I've learned how to say no and put up boundaries real hard if someone's yeah you know pushing my buttons and. Yeah. <laughs> um, most people are so respectful and so nice and all they do is like tweet compliments or they'll just be like, hey, I saw this horse thing. Maybe you're interested in this. And that's great. It's wonderful. That's like that's like 98% of the people I interact with. But yeah, just every once in a while, someone will really, they're just not in control. And it's my job to be like, hey, no, yeah, I'm going to block you or you need to stop emailing me or yeah. Sure. <laughs> I don't want to end on that. <laughs> I, I know, like it's a so negative. Oh, actually, I wanted to ask you about the whole stoic, artistic, heroic line graphic. Oh. Is this your response to New York Magazine's approval matrix? Uh, have you been oh. thinking more about graphics and lines and figures, adopting more of that in your I've work? I've always loved the yeah. approval matrix. It's so fun to look at, even <laughs> yeah. if I don't agree with it. Yeah. I kind of like, and I like that, um, what's that thing in the New York Times that's sort of like, what's hot, what's kind of oh, not, yeah, and what's yeah. what's out? It's so silly. Um yeah, I think I think it is sort of making fun of that because it's not like a real graph that you can ever have. You can't yeah. rate people on a scale from heroic to stoic. Like that doesn't make sense. Statistics really serve the best purpose when they're nonsensical and they can't actually be uphold. They're just one person's opinion turned into a kind of infographic. Yeah, it's almost they become more ridiculous yet weird. This is kind of what we were talking about earlier about the single uh, comic strips uh, that this is kind of a format that appeals to you, I suppose. Yeah, it's it's a infographics are a perfect joke structure if you need just like a one panel comic i think um like tom gold who's one of my favorite cartoonists right now he's he'll use like infographics and stuff in his comics in such a funny concise way um and i mean i try not to do it too often because i feel like i'm you know sometimes it's too easy or but yeah and he's i mean he's the best at it (laughs) so so how how do you avoid repeating yourself i mean you're doing a number of different styles throughout your work uh it's not yeah sometimes it's it's you got gary sometimes it's white space we've i think we've got into it quite well Mm -hmm. but you know what do you do to ensure that you're not repeating yourself and you're trying something new i can't ensure that i mean there are certain themes that i'm always going to go back to i'm probably going to draw a million more car crashes or moose or cat people or lizard people but um i see you at a rest home drawing lizard (laughs) yeah definitely but you know as long as i'm trying to to do something a little bit different i switch up my styles a lot like i used to be more line based in my work and now i'm doing more shape and color so i mean maybe that's just a superficial change but it definitely makes me feel fresh or i don't know (laughs) gets me out of a rut getting out of a rut seems good place to end this conversation. Lisa, thank you so much. It was a great pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. Fantastic. Jumping up and down the floor My hat is an animal And once there was an animal It had a sound